Good evening. I'm glad to be with you, and uh, I'm especially glad that I have a couple of questions to answer. I wish I had my library handy. Uh, it would make the answers a little better. But, you know, it's, uh, it's always good if you... Uh, uh, sometimes a chapel will assign a subject. Sometimes it will come up clearly in the breaking of bread meeting, which is just before the preaching. But uh, it's, I think, the hardest point of speaking from the Bible is to figure out what subject you're supposed to say. I mean, it isn't so much. Once you have the subject, then you can reach for the library or you can uh, study the Bible and you can put it together. But what you want to do is speak about something that is already on the hearts of the people, and you want to be speaking about a subject which meets the needs of the people. And so if they hand you a question, I think that's a good thing. Uh, so uh, I'm glad that uh, you did that. Uh, I was handed four questions, but I'm going to answer two, but I'm going to spend a little time on it and uh, then uh, go into a, uh, a thought about how God broadens us as sons of God in order to serve him better. Uh, the uh, first uh, question was, what verses support the idea of absent in the body, present with the Lord? And uh, you probably hear that quite a bit in uh, preaching. And it's one of the verses in the Bible that uh, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't attend meetings, uh, you hear that verse, absent from the body is present with the Lord. And that verse actually is in the Bible, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, where the Apostle Paul is speaking about uh, uh, the, uh, his being made ready for heaven. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, see, that's what I live in, this body, this is a tent. This is temporary. This is temporary. You know, uh, it reminds you of that uh, hymn, This World is Not My Home, I'm Only Passing Through. Uh, Abraham in the Bible is a very, very rich man. Until the day that Abraham died, he lived in a tent. He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham was not putting down his roots in this world. He looked for a, a, a city, as I say, whose builder and maker was God. And so the Apostle Paul, when he speaks about your body, it's a tent. It's a place where you live. We know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, that is, if death comes, we have a building from God. God has created an eternal body from us, uh, a house uh, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, this morning we were speaking about that. We read a verse from the book of uh, Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven from whence we eagerly wait for the Savior who will change my vile body like unto his glorious body, and so shall we uh, ever be with the Lord. Um, according to the power whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. 
If this earthly house, if I should die, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, and it's, e- it's an eternal house. When the Lord raises up your body and fashions it, it will be an eternal body. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. We would like our heavenly body. Uh, maybe you don't desire that right now, but as you grow older, you're going to desire your heavenly body. It just can't come fast enough for you. By the way, nobody here is in their heavenly body. I can tell just by looking at you, you're not in your heavenly body. So although you're redeemed to the extent that your sins are forgiven... Uh, your salvation is not complete. You're not in heaven. You don't have a new body. And so you're sort of like as Peter described salvation. It is a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So you are saved and you will be saved when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and changes your body. Uh, Verse 4, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. It isn't that we want to be spirits just uh, going about, but further clothed. We want our spiritual body that mortality may be swallowed up by life. As long as I'm in this tent, which is deteriorating, death is having a victory over me. I can see and you can see that each day left to ourselves, we get closer to death. And uh, we mentioned that verse this morning, too, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the final enemy, the last enemy who will be overcome is death. And you are all forgiven of your sins, but you still face death. That's when the Lord will change your body. Now he, verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. And he's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The moment you're saved, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. In Romans 8, we read that if any man does not have the Spirit of God, he is none of his. That if you claim to be saved, but the Spirit of God is not in you, then you are not saved. The guarantee of your salvation, the proof of your salvation, is that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 6, therefore we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, well, that's where I am right now. I'm at home in my body, seated right here before before you. While I'm at home with the body, I'm absent from the Lord. Yes, I can reach the Lord by faith and I read his word and I can pray to him, but I'm not in the presence of the Lord. If I'm at home in the body, then I am absent from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't see the Lord yet. Here's the verse, verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body. Now, absent from the body is death. I mean, if you're absent from the body, you're dead. If I walk into a funeral parlor and your body is laid out there, but you're not there, 
you're dead. I mean, that's, that's an example of death. Uh, we are confident, yes, well, please, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. However, this is not the end of salvation. We were saying that this morning. Uh, just by way of review, if you turn with me to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians uh, and chapter five, verse twenty-three, we mentioned that uh, Thessalonians has five chapters, and in each chapter, he speaks about the coming of the Lord. And so, in chapter five, this is how he speaks about the coming of the Lord. Now, may the God of peace. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself. So here's another thing that God is going to do himself. You know, you may say, well, wait a minute. These Thessalonians, they lived 2,000 years ago. I mean, their body is in the grave. What in the world does their body look like, you know? I mean, God is going to raise up the body. How in all the world, what a mess that is going to be. God is equal to that, isn't he? Uh, the Lord, the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. The word sanctify makes you blameless in holiness. And your whole spirit, well, my spirit is already redeemed. My soul, my body will be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, the final result of our salvation is that we're not absent from the body. Uh, our bodies are changed and we are in our body forever. Like the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ is a spirit. <clears throat> when he meets the woman at the well, he says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in the Old Testament, the Son of God, his name is not Jesus, and he's not a man, is he? The Son of God is a spirit. When he creates the heavens and the earth, he is not a man. But to die upon the cross, you have to have a body to die. And so he becomes a man. A body hast thou given unto me, you know, in the 40th Psalm. And uh, that he goes as a man to the cross and there lays down his body as a sacrifice for sin. That he bore, in First Peter, he bears our sin in his own body on the tree. And every morning, every Christmas, um, Lord's Day morning, when we remember uh, the Lord, we look at the bread. This is my this is my body. That's his body, which is broken for you. So he takes upon himself the form of a body in order to die for my sin. Then he dies. His spirit goes to heaven. His body goes to the grave. That, by the way, is the definition of death. Your spirit goes that way. Your body goes that way. The Lord Jesus Christ actually died upon the, upon the cross. After he pays for my sin, the wonderful thing is 
that he does not lay aside his body. He does not go back to heaven as a spirit. See, he keeps his body. There was a prevalent um, verse at Breaking of Bread this morning that at the name of Jesus, see, that is his earthly name. That is the name of the Son of God in his body. Every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow to a man who is the Son of God. See, he does not lay his body aside. And when you die, and when you are saved by the Lord, you do not lay your body aside. Absent from the body is present with the Lord, but the Lord is going to redeem your body. Uh, The other one, uh, I'm just going to do two of these. Where did Lazarus go during the three days he was dead? Uh, this is an interesting question because uh, you can actually broad, broaden it. Uh, what happened to people who died before the Lord Jesus Christ died for their sin? Now, Lazarus was a believer, so we could even sharpen it a bit. What happened to those who believed in God when they died uh, when when they died upon the earth. Um, and uh, the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time explaining this, but I will tell you what I believe. And uh, next Sunday when I come, I'll give you a week to think about it. And when I come, you can march right up and you can uh, tell me what you believe. Um The first thing I believe is that nobody goes to heaven until Jesus Christ dies for their sin. Nobody's sins are forgiven until Jesus Christ dies for their sin. Nobody. And so the question is, well, then if a a man who has walked in fellowship with God, if he dies, what happens to him? Now, the Lord answers this in a story which is given in Luke chapter 16. And uh, as I say that, uh, I accept it, but I want to tell you, not every Christian accepts this explanation. Some people say in Luke 16, it's the story about Lazarus, the servant going into Abraham's bosom. Some people say that's a parable. Other people say this is no parable. The Lord does not say it's a parable. Uh, The brethren fathers do not say this is a parable. Uh, In the back of my Bible, it lists the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ, 39 of them. And this uh, story about the rich man and Lazarus is not among those parables. When I came in this evening, I took the Bible from your rack, and I looked in the back at the parables, and you show it as a parable. So uh, right away, there's a difference here, you know. Uh, But uh, let me just read to you uh, the situation. In Luke chapter 16... And verse 19, there was a certain rich man, the Lord Jesus is telling this story, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus 
full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his wounds. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, the moment you read that, you wish that the Lord spends an additional paragraph here explaining it. I know that we're all going to end up in heaven, but you don't get to heaven until Jesus Christ dies. Where did Lazarus go? I mean, Lazarus, for example, he died before the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross. The Lord, um, the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment, he is in Hades, which is not the final resting place of the damned. The final resting place of the damned is the lake of fire. That's in the 20th chapter of Revelation. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, you remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things and now he is comforted and you are tormented and besides all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us now the point is that the brethren fathers will say that Abraham's bosom was a place that you were there waiting until Jesus Christ died on the cross. And, uh, of course, on the other hand, a person who was a sinner, he goes to a place uh, uh, called Hades uh, until he is resurrected from that place and goes to the lake of fire. Abraham's bosom. Now, how do you get out of Abraham's bosom? Again, you wish that there was a chapter on this. There is no chapter on it. But I will tell you the verse that the brethren fathers connect with it. That's in um, Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4. And he says in verse 8, Therefore, when he says, when he ascended on high, when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He led captive. Those that were captive. Now, this is not an unfriendly captivity. This is those who were not in heaven waiting for the crucifixion, for the death of Jesus Christ, the redemption of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord uh, ascended on high, he brought with him those uh, captivity captive. Now, this verse is quoted in the 68th Psalm. 
And if you want, you can just turn to it. He led captivity captive. Uh, you know, there are a number of parts in the Bible where you really wish the Lord would say a little more. But uh, he doesn't. And uh, so we just sort of work our way through. Uh, turn to Psalm 68 for a moment. And uh, I just want to, you to look at the verses that follow Psalm 68. Psalm 68, the uh, verse we're looking for is verse 18. Psalm 68 and the verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. Verse 19, blessed be the Lord. I mean, you can well imagine that people who are waiting to get into glory, as soon as the Lord pays for the sins of men, that the word on their lips are, blessed be the Lord, who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belongs escape from death. You see? Now, somebody could say, I wish that was stronger, you know. But that's what it is. That is what it is. You know, um, when you, when you uh, want to form your doctrine and understand the doctrine of the Bible, make sure you do it from the New Testament. Make sure that you do it from the New Testament. The Old Testament is the Word of God. But the Old Testament uh, sort of gives you the truth in picture form. The New Testament gives you the fullness of the truth. So make sure that your doctrine is based upon New Testament truth. For example, I went home with your bulletin. I really commend you on your bulletin, you know. And on the back, it's what we believe. What we believe. And uh, a number of chapels put that, uh, their faith, on the back. This is what we believe. And you have nine points here that you present what you believe. And you quote 18 verses to prove those nine points. And every one of those verses is from the New Testament. And I say hallelujah for you. Because uh, if you reach out to the Old Testament, sometimes you're reaching out to a verse that is not complete, that is not fulfilled and it's the New Testament that gives you the total answer just for a moment turn to uh, the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 I you know I wonder uh, it's one of those verses that you're reading through the book of Hebrews which is a New Testament uh, book. Uh, it's written to the Jews. It's written to the Hebrews. And uh, all of a sudden you're reading along. You think you know the Bible pretty well. And you get to Hebrews chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10 and verse 4. It is not possible 
that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. I mean, that verse, goodness, that stops you right in your tracks. Just suppose you didn't have the New Testament and you had only the Old Testament. What would you think? How would your sins be forgiven? I would offer a lamb. There's no verse in the Bible that says, well, that lamb represents someone greater than that lamb who is going to die for your sin. Suppose, for example, you were to say, you know, that lamb, that lamb actually represents the Son of God who's going to come down from heaven and die for your sin. I mean, that's a lot to swallow, isn't it? You remember in the 16th chapter of the, of the gospel according to Matthew, when the Lord said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter answers, he says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, right? That was right. And the Lord said, blessed are you, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your father in heaven. And Peter had announced one of the great, great things that Jesus was none other than the Christ. He was the Messiah. But more than that, he was the Son of God. The Jewish nation today believes that they are going to get a Messiah. They don't believe that he is the Son of God. You remember the one question that the uh, Lord Jesus asked the Pharisees just a few days before his death. They were asking him all sorts of questions to trap him. And he said, let me ask you a question. He said, um, whose son is the Messiah? And to a Pharisee, that was ABC. Oh, he is the son of David. The Messiah is a descendant of David. Well, that was right. The Lord says then, why does David call him Lord? Because in the 110th Psalm, you read the Lord, who is God the Father, speaking to the Messiah. The Lord uh, speaks unto my Lord. And uh, the why does David call him Lord? Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And the Pharisees couldn't answer that. The Pharisees could not answer that. Uh, things that you and I just treat as something that, oh yes, we know that Jesus takes the place that bears my sin he uh, takes the place that is represented by that lamb. He dies for my sin and he is the son of God. Who in the Old Testament knew that? Who in the Old Testament really knew that? And so when Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, the Lord says to Peter, now I want to tell you something. The son of man is going to be put to death as we go into Jerusalem. And what does Peter say? He says, oh, no. He says, I can't. We don't want to hear any word about your death. We're here preaching the kingdom. What will happen if the king dies? I mean, Peter doesn't grasp it at all. 
And the Lord says, get thee behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, when you talk like that, you're just sounding just like Satan. That uh, redemption does not involve the death of the Messiah. But of course, redemption does involve the death of the Messiah. And so it is that um, if if you were if you just had the Old Testament and somebody said that uh, the thousands of lambs and bulls and goats that were offered as a sin offering, how in all the world, how in all the world uh, could sin be forgiven if not by these sacrifices? Just turn over to Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to preach my regular sermon at all tonight. Uh, it's just working out that way. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now, you know, if you're a lawyer, you stop with that verse and say, What? Abel is righteous? How does Abel get righteous by offering a lamb? When Hebrews chapter 10 says, The blood of lambs and bulls and goats cannot take away sin. You see that? So if you are basing your doctrine on Old Testament verses, there's a good chance that the Old Testament does not give you the full truth. Well, what is the full truth here? Uh, I mean, how can it be said uh, that Abraham was made righteous by his faith when Jesus Christ had not yet died for Abraham? How could it say that Abel was righteous when Jesus Christ had not yet died? How could it say in Luke chapter 1 that Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous before the Lord when Jesus Christ had not yet died for anybody? Or, I mean, when was Abraham's sins forgiven? I just ask that. Just sometimes it's good to ask that. When were Abraham's sins forgiven? Abraham's sins were forgiven when Jesus Christ died for those sins on Calvary's cross. That's when they were forgiven. When was Moses made righteous? When Jesus Christ died for Moses' sins on Calvary's cross. But the Old Testament, you could go down a different path here. And uh, you want to uh, look right. Well, the Bible is anxious that you know these things. That's one of the really wonderful things about the Bible. The Bible doesn't say, this is all supernatural stuff and you just have to take it even though you don't understand it. No, God wants you to understand it. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And verse uh, 25. God has set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrifice by his blood through faith, 
to demonstrate His righteousness. You notice that verse? That Jesus Christ on the cross demonstrates the righteousness of God the Father. Now you say, wait, wait a minute now. Jesus on the cross, he, he makes possible my righteousness, right? He dies for my sin and I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Also, Jesus Christ on the cross shows forth his own righteousness because he takes my sin upon him. And if there was one sin unpaid, he would be trapped in the grave because the wages of sin is death. But by rising from the dead, he has shown that he is righteous and perfect. But here this verse says, Jesus Christ on the cross shows the righteousness of the Father. Now why does the righteousness of the Father have to be demonstrated? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, God says of Abel, Abel offered up a, practice, a proper sacrifice and... God uh, gave witness that Abel was righteous. And is God unrighteous when he says that Abel is righteous before Jesus Christ has died for that? That's the question. Maybe a number of you are saying at the moment, I'm glad I didn't take up law, you know. But actually, going through the Bible, there's a lot of law in the Bible. There's a lot of reasoning in the Bible. As a matter of fact, many have said that the most logical book ever written is the book of Romans. God has set forth Christ to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate God's righteousness because, now read it carefully with me, in his forbearance, see, that's a key word here. In his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. See that? What does the word forbearance mean? If you forbear something, what does that mean? If I forbear something, it means I will accept it, but it's not perfect. I will accept it, but it's got to be better than this. I will accept it for the moment, but we've got to make it truer than that. God in his forbearance said to Abraham, you're righteous, even though Jesus Christ had not yet died for his sins says to Zacharias, you're righteous, even though Jesus Christ had not yet died for their sins. To demonstrate at the present time God's righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. No one goes to heaven until Jesus Christ dies for his sin. Nobody. The Spirit of God does not dwell in anyone. You know, we in the previous example, we were saying he's given us the Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. 
You know, in the Old Testament, if I offered a lamb for sin, then God said, that's an atonement for your sin, and your sin is covered. But there were two things lacking still. The first one was that if your sins were really covered, why did not the Spirit of God dwell in people in the Old Testament? And the second thing is, if your sins were really forgiven, why could you not walk into the presence of God? And nobody in the Old Testament did either one of those things. Abraham's faith is counted for righteousness, but the Spirit of God does not dwell within him as a guarantee. And uh, Moses can be the one who designs the tabernacle and oversees its building. But when the Holy of Holies is built, Moses is not allowed in there. Look at uh, the book of John, chapter 7. The book of John, chapter 7. Somebody is going to say, I'm never going to put another question in that box. <laughs> this is just one way of getting around it but if your question is where did Lazarus go after he died the Bible doesn't exactly jump right out with it does it I believe he went to a place called Abraham's bosom I believe after Christ died that the Lord led captivity captive heaven was open now and he brought those who had faith in him to their place in heaven. Look at John chapter 7. And uh, verse 38. John chapter 7 verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You believe in Jesus Christ, there ought to be that refreshing rivers of living water within you. The joy and the peace and the great joy that comes with walking with the Lord. Verse 39, but this he said concerning the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. This he said concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. Notice the end of this now. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, that's a very powerful verse. The Holy Spirit didn't dwell in anybody why was that? Because nobody's sins were truly forgiven. They were atoned for. They were covered. But they were not truly forgiven. Sins are not truly forgiven by the blood of lambs and bulls and goats. Sins are truly forgiven by the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, the Spirit of God is not given. When is the Spirit of God given? It's given on the day of Pentecost. And what happens on the day of Pentecost? 
that the Lord Jesus Christ, having spent 40 days with his disciples, that he ascends into heaven, he sits down at glory at the right hand of his Father, and he gives the Holy Spirit of God to all who are truly redeemed in him. Truly redeemed in him. So, if you get your doctrine from the Old Testament, the proper answer, how is sin forgiven in the Old Testament? By the offering up of a lamb. That's not true, is it? It's not true. It's not New Testament doctrine. And so I commend you again. 18, 18 verses, all of them for the New Testament. Might be a good exercise for you when you go home you just write down, this is what I believe, and then write a New Testament verse next to it. I believe this. And you'll find that just about everything you believe is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ died upon the cross. And that is New Testament. I'll just say one other thing in closing. Um, when you say the New Testament... Uh, you know, there's a verse in Hebrews when it says that the the covenant of the law is become obsolete and is ready to vanish away. Remember that verse? The covenant of the law has become obsolete. Not the law itself. The Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. But the covenant of the law is being replaced by a new covenant which is based upon the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you turn to Matthew, Matthew 1, Matthew 2, Matthew 3, Matthew 4, when does the new covenant begin? The new covenant begins the day Jesus is crucified. The new covenant begins when the Lord is in an upper room and he says to his disciples, this bread is my body, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. That's the beginning of the new covenant. It's at the very end of Matthew. It's at the very end of Luke. So you will find some people in Christianity, not brethren, but you will find some people in Christianity say, if you really are Christian, you ought to keep the Sabbath. And to make a point of what they say is, they will say, because Jesus kept the Sabbath. Well, of course he did. He lived his whole life under the old covenant, right? The new covenant. Every commandment of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the new covenant, except one. And that is, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So it is good to bring the New Testament in, the New Testament, the New Covenant. The New Covenant is based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what our faith is based upon. Can we look to the Lord? Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We pray that You'll bless it to our heart. We just thank You that there is an anchor that your word is truly made clear in the New Testament, and we pray that we, may, that we may hold fast to it, and then knowing the truth in the New Testament, to go back and enjoy the truth 
of God as it's presented in the Old Testament, in picture form, in a progressive form. We commit ourselves to thee in his name. Amen.